welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Alarm is growing among Democrats about what they are calling a threat to U.S. democracy. The spate of voter suppression legislation sweeping the nation. Those most impacted are the Democratic Party's most loyal supporters, black voters. Not since the Jim Crow era, before the successes of the civil rights movement, have many witnessed such attacks on the right to vote. What's going on? We speak with Barbara Arnwine, a veteran civil rights and human rights leader and advocate. She is known for her work protecting the right to vote. And there is a crisis in Israel Is there one? And if so, will it have any impact on the ongoing Israeli-Palestinian conflict? A key vote is coming up this Sunday on whether to approve a new governing coalition that could mean the end of the regime of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. From what some are calling a civil war within Israel to the recent war between Israel and Palestinians that left 256 Palestinians, including 66 children, dead. And in Israel, 13 people were killed, including two children. Our guest is Middle East expert and author Phyllis Bennis. And even as protesters hit the streets again in Minneapolis following the killing of yet another black man, Winston Boogie Smith Jr., a 32-year-old father of three, there is a tug of war between the city and those who want to protect what is known as George Floyd Square. The square is located at the location where Mr. Floyd was killed at the hands of police. What's involved? We speak with Marcia Howard, a high school teacher, caregiver, and activist based in Minneapolis. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated, so on Sojourner Truth. We work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. President Biden is leaving for Europe at this hour on his first foreign trip since taking office. The goal of the eight-day trip is to try and rebuild strained relationships with allies who were put off by former President Trump's America First foreign policy agenda. Biden spoke with reporters as he boarded the plane this morning. Strengthening the alliance, make it clear to Putin and to uh, China that Europe and the United States are tight. The G7 is going to move. Biden has stops in the U.K. for the G7 meeting in Cornwall. He'll then head to Brussels for meetings with NATO leaders before heading to Geneva for a summit meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Biden has said it's important that the West publicly demonstrate it can compete economically with China as the world emergency emerges from the coronavirus pandemic. President Biden has ended talks with the Republican-led negotiator on a big infrastructure package. Biden walked away from talks with West Virginia Senator Shelley Moore Capito. 
after not being able to bridge the $750 billion spending gap between the Democratic and Republican proposals. He's reportedly reached out to 10 senators who are working on their own bill as congressional Democrats consider moving ahead without GOP support. Christina Onestad has more. Senate Democrats say they're taking two approaches to passing President Joe Biden's infrastructure plan. Now that he's ditched negotiations with Republican Shelley Capito. Here's Senate leader Democrat Chuck Schumer. We will not be able to do all the things that the country needs in a totally bipartisan, in a bipartisan way. And so at the same time, we are pursuing um, the, the uh, pursuit of reconciliation. And that is going on at the same time. With a narrowly split House and a 50-50 Senate, the White House faces political challenges, pushing its priorities through Congress with Democratic votes alone, and centrists in the party like Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin. But Senate budget rules allow legislation to be approved with a 51-vote threshold, rather than the 60 votes typically needed to advance a bill past a Republican filibuster. I'm Christina Onestead, reporting for KPFA. The Senate overwhelmingly approved a bill Tuesday to boost investment in scientific research. The centerpiece of the bill is a $50 billion emergency allotment to the Commerce Department to push semiconductor development and manufacturing through research and incentive programs previously authorized by Congress. The bill's overall cost would increase spending by about $250 billion, with most of the spending occurring in the first five years. Supporters described it as the biggest investment in scientific research that the country has seen in decades. It comes as the nation's share of semiconductor manufacturing globally has steadily eroded from 37% in 1990 to about 12% now, and as a chip shortage has exposed vulnerabilities in the U.S. supply chain. While the bill enjoys bipartisan support, a core group of GOP senators has reservations about its costs. European Union lawmakers today endorsed a new travel certificate that will allow people to move between EU countries without having to quarantine or undergo extra coronavirus tests. The move paves the way for the pass to start in time for summer. The widely awaited certificate is aimed at saving Europe's travel industry and prime tourist sites from another disastrous vacation season. The pass will have both paper and digital forms and will be introduced soon. Several EU countries have already begun using the system, including the Czech Republic, Denmark, Germany, and Greece. Right now, traveling in the EU's 27 nations is a trial for tourists and airlines alike. Countries have various COVID-19 traffic light systems where those in green are considered safe and those in red to be avoided. But each nation is applying different rules and standards, making travel confusing for all. Meanwhile, France is easing COVID-19 restrictions ahead of the summer tourist season. Starting today, non-essential travel will be allowed from certain countries, and bars, restaurants, and cafes will start allowing indoor dining. Feature Story News' Ross Cullen reports from Paris. Previously, only the outdoor areas of bars and cafes were open, but indoor dining rooms are also now open again. Sports halls, swimming pools and theme parks can also reopen from Wednesday. The eye-catching measure is to allow non-essential travel, but all incoming visitors must be fully vaccinated and people travelling from countries on France's coronavirus amber list, like the US and the UK, must also show proof of a recent negative PCR test before coming into France. Ross Cullen, Paris. And I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. 
And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Even as President Biden leaves to meet with Western allies of the United States, there's trouble back home. Not since the days of Jim Crow laws have we seen such attacks on voting rights, impacting voters of color for the most part. Across the United States, a slew of what many are calling voter suppression laws are being passed. As of yet, legislators have introduced 389 bills with restrictive provisions in 48 states. This according to the Brennan Center for Justice. 22 bills with restrictive provisions have already been enacted. In addition, at least 61 bills with restrictive provisions in 18 states now moving through legislatures. 31 have passed at least one chamber, while another 30 have had some sort of committee action. A majority of the laws make it harder to vote absentee and by mail, but eight states have gone even further, passing legislation to implement barriers to traditional in-person voting as well. Many have pointed out that this GOP push is a backlash to the record 2020 election turnout, which led to the defeat of the 45th occupant of the White House, and in which a majority of voters use non-traditional methods to cast ballots because of the COVID-19 pandemic. One of the harshest of the new legislation would ban people in Georgia from offering food or drink to voters waiting in long lines. Arkansas and Montana led the country in new voting restrictions with four new laws enacted each. Both imposed or tightened identification requirements for in-person voting and added restrictions for assisting voters in returning mail ballots. Alabama, Idaho, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Oklahoma, Utah, and Wyoming have also passed laws with restrictive language. In Georgia, the new law signed by GOP Governor Brian Kemp on March 25th imposes a number of restrictions on voting in the state, earning it comparisons to the Jim Crow laws that effectively blocked black men and women from voting in the U.S. South. Specifically, the rules prevent proactively sending mail ballot applications to voters, require voters to submit identification with their application to be approved, and shorten the time frame for the application process to take place. Meanwhile, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin is publicly opposing the For the People Act, which passed the House in March. This bill is a groundbreaking measure designed to protect voting rights that are under attack from the GOP in several states. Along with changes to ethics rules and campaign finance laws, it would create a national baseline of voting rights, such as mandating automatic and same-day voting registration, no-excuse mail-in voting, and early voting. On Sunday, Senator Manchin published a column in the Charleston Gazette Mail where he spoke out against the For the People Act, or H.R. 1, which Senate Republicans are refusing to support as, you know, and the filibuster comes into play here. Uh, let's go to a clip now from CBS on Senator Manchin's plans. 
How much of a blow is this to President Biden's agenda? And how concerning is it to you that Manchin has vowed to keep the filibuster? Well, thank you for having me. Certainly it is a concern. I would not call it a blow. Uh, listen, the reason you saw so many people in the Democratic, um, I would say, environment, you had some who were frustrated, you had some who were pissed off, because people know the history of the filibuster. They know Strong Thurmond used the filibuster in 1957 uh, to filibuster the Civil Rights Act. And we also know that has been used as a weapon of mass, political mass destruction and a weapon of political mass distraction and also used as a drainage plug to stop progress in this country. And so when Senator Manchin's op-ed piece came out on Sunday, it caused a real ruckus, I think, uh, within so many fractions of the Democratic Party. Why? Because think about what that could mean for the president's agenda. By the way, his agenda is bipartisan because outside of Washington, D.C., most of the items he continues to advocate for enjoy above 50% approval. And so you look at how Democrats have eight, were able to put Joe Biden in the White House and how we have the majority in both the House and the Senate. It's because of, I believe, the most loyal constituency in the country, and that's black voters. And when you think about what the filibuster will stop, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's the voting rights uh, legislation, it will have tremendous impact on the most consequential community in this country, black voters. Currently, the U.S. Senate is split down the middle 50-50 between Democrats and Republicans. The only advantage Democrats have is Vice President Kamala Harris's casting vote as vice president. So Manchin becomes uh, particularly important. The For the People Act, also known as H.R. 1, is intended to expand voting rights, change campaign finance laws to reduce the influence of money in politics, limit partisan gerrymandering, and create new ethics rules for federal office holders. The act was originally introduced by Democrats on January 3rd, 2019. The other federal bill under consideration is the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, or H.R. 4, which intends to reinstate a provision of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that requires states to receive federal preclearance to change voting rules. This is a provision the Supreme Court struck down in 2013. Although the provision was part of a 25-year extension of the Voting Rights Act that was supposed supported by all senators who voted in 2006, this time it failed to receive any Republican support beyond one. That's Senator Lisa Murkowski. Here to discuss all of this is someone who has spent uh, decades, it seems, working to protect the vote. I'd like to welcome back to Sojourner Truth, Barbara Arnwine a veteran civil rights and human rights leader and advocate. She is currently the president and founder of Transformative Justice Coalition. For 26 years, she was the executive director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. She received international renown for her work on the 1991 uh, Civil Rights Act uh, create, creation of the 2011 voter suppression map of shame and continues to champion civil rights issues in the areas of housing, fair lending, community development, employment, voter justice, education, environmental justice, and more. 
In 2011, Ms. Arnwine was awarded the Gruber International Justice Prize for her excellence in defending and promoting civil rights and gender equity throughout the United States and globally. Barbara Arnwine, welcome. Thank you, and it's a pleasure and honor to be on your show. Thank you so much, Barbara Arnwine. You have been doing this work of protecting the right to vote and much more, but specifically on the right to vote for quite some time now. Have you ever seen anything like what is happening now? Your thoughts it's, on this? It's, it is horrific. This is the most widespread assault on the right to vote uh, since 2011. When I did the Map of Shame in 2011, we had 40 states with over 140 pieces of voter suppression legislation. We're now looking at 48 states with over 369 <laughs> pieces of voter suppression legislation. So this is the worst assault because people are more desperate. Uh, you know, this is the 10th year that we have been in this cycle of voter suppression. They've never relented. Every year there's been, you know, a, a, um, a whole epidemic of people putting forth, you know, these voter suppression laws. But this is the worst because they saw the power of the people. 17 million more people voted in 2020 than voted in 2016 in the midst of a COVID epidemic. And this followed on the heels of a record turnout for midterms in 2018. Uh, so they see that there is a growing public engagement and participation in our electorate uh, and in our elections. And they are, are noticing that a whole lot of those voters who are showing up are people of color and that they're young people. And they're the traditionally marginalized, the traditionally, uh, you know, uh, I would say disdained uh, voters who are now saying, well, I want to be engaged and I want to be heard and I will even risk my life in a COVID situation to vote in person if I must. Uh, so it is remarkable that, uh, that the response is not to say, wonderful, look at all of this great democracy and action, all of this great you know, public interest and all this great public participation. The reaction is to say, as they did say in uh, Georgia, we got to shrink the electorate. As they said in Arizona, we got to shrink the electorate. That means they want less voters participating. They want to block voters purposefully from being able to not only cast a ballot, but to have that ballot counted. So this is serious. This is probably the worst political moment of my life, the worst civil rights moment of my life, the worst racial injustice moment for many of us for generations. And, yes, uh, it is a threat not only to you know voters of color and young voters, but it's a threat to entirety of all voters and all Americans. Right. So it sounds as though you share the alarm of people who are saying this is um, a threat to the 
democracy as practiced uh, in the United States. And Barbara Arnwine, I mean, there are all these laws uh, going on. There's uh, voter suppression laws being implemented and passed. It seems like a cane fire across uh, the nation, gerrymandering and, and other efforts um, uh, being put in place. But also, I can't help but feel that what is going on with uh, Trump and his supporters running around uh, claiming that he should be the president, that he really won. He still was with that line as early as, as uh, this past uh, weekend. And also, yeah. the you know, the, this report that came out on the January 6th uh, insurrection, where they're not using the word insurrection uh, unless to quote um, a news article or, or somebody mentioning it. So it, it, it seems as though, and then the rise of all these right-wing um, militias and uh, racist attacks uh, on the uptick uh, against black people, the police shootings, also the uptick, by the way, of attacks against uh, Asian, the Asian community. It seems to me as though it's a whole piece of Barbara Arnwine where you really feel, I mean, me as a person of African descent yourself, you just feel under threat you know, just by not even walking out your ha walking out the door of your home, but even inside your own home, uh, like Brianna uh, Taylor uh, in St. Louis and in, in Kentucky there. So put this together for us. I mean, you're saying you haven't witnessed anything like this in your lifetime. Other black people that I've talked to, they have the same view and people are really not only very worried, but very afraid in some instances for their own personal safety and for what it means for the future, our future living in the United States. Barbara Arnwine. Well, it's, it's all of the same whole cloth. Uh, you know, I said um, two decades ago uh, that looking at the projected demographic change in this country and that this would be beco uh, becoming a nation that would be more uh, people of color, uh, you know, in 2050 than, uh, uh, you know, white dominates and, uh, and that this would require, uh, you know, substantial structural changes in America and uh, to, you know, accommodate a different, you know, population that was voting and making and electing different kind of people and that the U.S. had two choices, right? One was to aggressively facilitate this new multiracial uh, society into being and to, you know, uh, reallocate and readjust uh, its power distribution and to recognize that, you know, right now we actually have an artificial, you know, part, uh, uh, political structure. I mean, think about it. The average uh, state legislature in this country is only about 25 percent women. Uh, that makes zero sense. Women are 54 percent of the national electorate. Uh, and not only that, uh, you know, women, of course, are more than capable of holding office. Uh, so, you know, we have these artificial realities uh, that dominate our body politic. And the same is uh, true for, voter, uh, for people of color communities where they are significantly underrepresented. Just think about it. Not one state in this union has ever had an African-American woman governor, even now. Uh, so there are these, you know, just... Uh, pressing realities that uh, that you either accommodate you know, that change or, I said, that you start acting like South Africa and you start imposing all kinds of restrictions and blocking, you know, black voters 
and blocking Latino voters, blocking Native American voters and Asian voters uh, to you know take away their political power uh, and make sure that you could have you know artificial white domination. And those conservatives attacked me and said that I was being an alarmist, that I was you know, uh, absolutely just being, uh, you know, making up racial conspiracy. And look where we are now. I knew that this would happen. I knew that, they, that we would have you know, this conflict. And our country literally is at a divide. And I think it's important for everyone to understand that, because that's why you're seeing not only the attacks that you mentioned, but let's talk about the new attacks that have occurred since September of 2020 on truth-telling. Uh, you know, uh, the restrictions, we have seven states that have banned the teaching of the 1619 Project, that have yeah. banned the teaching of African-American studies, that have banned the teaching of women's studies, that have banned the teaching of Latino studies. Seven states have done so, including Texas, including Oklahoma. And, in fact, uh, not only uh, have they done that, uh, but we have uh, eight states states that are have laws pending to do so and more that are coming up so this whole assault to try to keep you know an artificial narrative about you know white uh you know about you know um white domination in our country and to you know continue to try to, to dominate artificially is just unacceptable and it's important for us to re- recognize that but in the wash if people just say, well, that's a problem for the people of color, no, it's a problem for all of us because in the wash, damage is being done to all voters. There's no accident that in Joe Manchin's own state of West Virginia, 71 to 79 percent of all people polled about the For the People Act support it. Why do they support it? Because they need drop boxes. Why do they support it? Because they need the ability to have absentee uh, balloting in that rule, you know, uh, state. Why do they support it? They need to have automatic voter registration. Why do they support it? They need to have you no know, election day uh, registration. They know that's good for them as voters, regardless of race. And yet, at the same time, you know, you have him voting. Uh, you know, his. Uh, you know, voting. You know, totally outside of the wishes of his people and the people he represents. Uh, so that's, you know, the kind of contradictions. And think about this. When we're talking about the worst of the worst, I mean, it's terrible you know, that that whole ban on giving people food and assistance because they're standing in long lives, because the government didn't provide enough polling places. Um, but think about this. In Oklahoma, they have a law pending right now that would require that, that the registration rolls be wiped clean. Not one person who's currently registered would be considered a valid registrant. Every wow. person would be thrown off the voter registration book. Every single person, including the wow. governor, every sitting legislature, and they would have to re-register. Every person would have to re-register. Now, that's how desperate they got Right. And uh, Barbara Arnwine, I mean, just the few minutes we have left, you broke that down just so well, Barbara. And a lot of people <laughs> are contrasting, you know, the Jim Crow era 
the new poll tax, even, you know, some of these measures uh, being a new poll tax. But Manchin is making a lot of the fact that he supports the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Advancement Act, H.R. Uh, 4, which would reinstate a provision in the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that you and I have talked about before when the Supreme Court uh, gutted it. But um, is that good enough? Would that give him a pass here? Just your final thoughts on all of this and, and the broader implications, Barbara Arnwine. It's a three, he's playing three-card Monty. Um, think about it. Uh, I always say that you need both because they're bookends. You know, the For the People Act establishes uniform standards so that if I'm in uh, Maine, I have the same uh, basic voting rights in federal elections uh, if I, as if I were in Mississippi, uh, Louisiana, Texas, uh, California, Florida, you name it. We would have the same uniform rights, and nobody could take those away from me to have early voting, etc. cetera. Uh, what the John Lewis Voting Rights Act does is it says for all those other bad laws that the state might pass, uh, such as a restriction on, uh, you know, giving people food and rates or, or, you know, uh, reducing only the black uh, and brown polling sites like we saw in Cobb County in Georgia, uh, that that could be challenged in court. Uh, but you got mandatory standards on one side that uh, gives voters assets, and then you have the protection from criminal, uh, you know, minded uh, legislatures that are trying to block people on the basis of their race uh from participating in voting. So they're totally different, uh, and one can't replace the other. No, John Lewis Voting Rights Act will never be able to mandatorily make, you know, states have uh, election day registration or to have early voting or to have drop boxes or to, you know, uh, give people the right to vote by mail. It can't do that. Uh, all it could do is say that if you had unequal treatment on the racial grounds for the provision of any of that, that you could, of course, attack it in court. So you got proactive and you got, uh, you, know, uh, you know, this uh, really hard regimen uh, that is under the Voting Rights Act. You need both. You got to have both because no matter what you do, uh, no matter how many standards you come up with under the For the People Act, you could never anticipate the criminality of some of these legislatures that would come up with something like deregistering your voter. I mean, this is the madness that we're at, and that's why you need both people. It's urgent. It's imperative that we all stand in this moment. We stand up for democracy. Today is the anniversary, the 58th anniversary of when Fannie Lou Hamer, think about this, Margaret, when Fannie Lou Hamer was beaten and arrested, uh, you know, arrested and beaten uh, for, you know, uh, riding, uh, helping people to register to vote. And she, of course, never really recovered from that. That's why she died before she was 60 years old, uh, you know, because of that, you know, horrific uh, beating that was administered to her. People have fought so hard for this right to vote on this anniversary. Let's honor her. Let's say to Manson. Let's say to everyone, we got to get this done. We got to pass this law. We got to pass, you know, the, the For the People Act. And then we got to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and D.C. Admission. Uh, we just have to be very clear that this is our generation's time to stand up, stand tall, and fight for justice, not to allow uh, these reactionary uh, forces to try to prevent what is inevitably needed change. The dif difference between Jim Crow and 1950 is that you were dealing with racial minorities. 
uh, that had, uh, you know, uh, diminished power because of their numbers. Now we have racial majorities where people are trying to diminish their power. It's a totally uh, different dynamic, but it's so important that we fight racism in the vote. Absolutely, and thank you for that. Uh, Barbara Arnwine, for people who want to follow your work and uh, find out more yes. about what you're doing, what should they do? Oh, my goodness. They can uh, follow me on Twitter at Barb73, that's B-A-R-B-S-7-3. Uh, you can also you know, follow me on Facebook at Barbara Arnwine. I uh, am active on you know, all those platforms, LinkedIn, you name it. I'm very active, and I believe you know, so strongly in TJC, the Transformative Justice Coalition, and my mighty uh, co-partner, you know, partner, uh, Daryl Jones, as you know, chair of the board. We believe so strongly in public education, public support, public engagement. That's what we live for. We believe in an active and robust but, you know, um, democracy where every voter is engaged in protecting uh, this, you know, incredible enterprise that was conceived of so many years ago. Right. Well, on that note, I'm afraid we are going to have to leave it there. But, Barbara, please come <laughs> back sometime very soon. We really appreciate your work. And thank you for joining us. I know how busy you are. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate your brilliance and having uh, the way you do these and cover these very, very major, important issues, not only here in the U.S., but globally. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Barbara Arnwine. Uh, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take our station break. Don't go away. Our weekly Earth Minute coming up and a Middle East expert, Phyllis Bennis, breaking down for us what is happening in the Middle East and what's up in Minneapolis with George Floyd Square. We're going to speak with Marsha Howard, who's a teacher and a resident there. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Yes, there are five Sold I'm to the merchant ships Minutes of a day to guide From the bottomless pit But my air was made strong By the end of the Almighty We forward in this generation favorite there, the late, great Bob Marley redemption song. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check out our um, our website at SoTrueRadio.org uh, where we do have a community calendar. Also, if you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at SoTrueRadio. And we are nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners across the Middle East, including in Israel and Palestinian uh, territories. Phyllis Bennis waiting to speak with us. First, let's quickly go to our weekly Earth Minute. <laughs> 
world's first genetically modified animal has been harvested by the biotech company Aquabounty at their aquaculture farm in Indiana. Aquabounty's genetically modified salmon are engineered to grow twice as fast as wild salmon, reaching market size in 18 rather than 36 months. In 2020, the Center for Food Safety and Earth Justice won a lawsuit against the FDA for failing to evaluate the impacts of genetically modified salmon on native salmon populations. While the federal court declared the fish unlawful, the decision has no impact on the current production or sale of GM salmon. According to the Center for Food Safety, the lawsuit highlights the FDA's failure to protect the environment and consult wildlife agencies in its review process as required by federal law. It's time that we take a look at whether or not our regulatory agencies are equipped to adequately assess genetically engineered organisms and their impacts on wild ecosystems. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Teresa Church from Global Justice Ecology Project. Genetically modified salmon, watch out. Okay, we are now going to turn our attention uh, to the uh, what's happening in Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict following bloody tensions between Israel and Palestine. Israeli politics seems to be at a turning point, uh, but many argue it really won't make a change in Israeli foreign policy. On Sunday, June 13th, Israel's parliament will vote on whether to approve a new governing coalition that could potentially end the 12-year um, reign of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. On Tuesday, June 8th, Israeli parliament uh, speaker uh, Yariv Levin announced the vote will take place during a special session on June 13th. Meanwhile, on June 7th, Israeli police blocked a planned march by Jewish nationalists through Palestinian neighborhoods of Jerusalem after a similar parade last month played a key role in building the tensions, many say, sparked the latest um, conflict um, with uh, Palestinians. In the past week, security officials have expressed alarm at a rise in incitement and hate speech from voices on the far right in Israel who are angered by that the proposed government, while headed by a far right nationalist, also includes Arab and left-wing politicians. Israeli security forces guard the streets of Lod weeks after uh, people torch patrol cars, uh, synagogues and homes, and a lot of uh, fighting going on uh, between Israeli and um, people of Arab descent living in that area. Attackers who killed an Arab and a Jewish resident are still at large, and a mayor whom some blame for setting the stage for some of the worst domestic unrest in Israeli history remains in office. So here to help us to understand what's going on and the broader implications, we'd like to welcome back uh, Phyllis Bennis, directs the new internationalism project at the Institute for Policy Studies, focusing on U.S. Middle East and war policy. She also serves on the board of Jewish Voice for Peace. Her most recent books include Understanding the Palestinian-Israeli Conflict, an expert in the region. Phyllis Bennis, welcome back. Great to be with you, Margaret. Okay, so Phyllis, um, break down for us. First of all, help us to understand what is happening now with this um, governing uh, coalition, this vote that's coming up on June 13th. What are the right, forces? This is, a, 
This mm-hmm. is a very um, unstable situation. The vote that's supposedly going to happen on the 13th may or may not happen. The coalition that has been cobbled together with, what do they say, duct tape and chewing gum, may or may not survive this week to get voted in officially, because this is a coalition that has one goal, one point of unity, which is get rid of Bibi Netanyahu as the prime minister. They don't agree on anything else. There is a a right-wing component to it that is the most powerful component. There is a centrist party. There is a left-ish party. And there's actually a Palestinian party, you know, one of the the five parties of, of Palestinian citizens of Israel is in this coalition. It's not going to survive, and it doesn't have enough... Uh, unity to actually accomplish anything other than the one goal of replacing Netanyahu. In terms of the impact, though, I think it's really important to recognize that politics in Israel has shifted so far to the right that even this sort of definition of this coalition as including the centrist and leftist forces is very much dominated by right-wing thinking and right-wing leaders. The first prime minister, if it happens, would be uh, uh, Naftali Bennett, who was a long-standing supporter of Netanyahu, he was actually his chief of staff for some years. He was in the cabinet appointed by Netanyahu, and is quite a bit further to the right than Netanyahu. It's important for for those of us who work in movements for for Palestinian rights to keep in mind that this shift to the right in Israeli politics means that Netanyahu himself, as extremist and right-wing as he is, is one of the furthest left of his current cabinet, because the, and he hasn't changed, but further right, extreme right, and really fascist right parties are now normalized parts of the Israeli political scene, and they are represented in the Knesset, they are in the government, so it's a very, uh, it's a very enticing notion that this is going to be a real difference But it's not actually true. On the question of what to do about relations with the Palestinians, there's really very little difference uh, between Netanyahu and this new so-called coalition. Uh, There's not any difference on remaining very provocative towards Iran, and there's not any difference in demanding from the United States a continuation of unchallenged U.S. military aid to Israel. Uh, There's been reports, we haven't gotten confirmation yet if the official request has come through, but that the the defense minister of Israel has been in the United States, in Washington, in the last few days, asking for an additional billion dollars, billion with a B, uh, to pay for Israel's replacement of some of the weapons they used in its recent attack last month on Gaza. So that's the, the scenario that we're looking at with this election. There's also the very real possibility, there's a few days left before this vote is going to happen in the Knesset to approve the new coalition as it's being proposed. And we know that Netanyahu has a history of being absolutely ruthless in his commitment to remaining in power. And right now, his commitment to remaining in power goes beyond his usual demand for power and maintaining control of Israeli politics. It's also very personal. Because he is, as I think, you know, you and I have talked about, Margaret, and I think many of your listeners will know, he is facing a host of charges on a variety of corruption issues. Uh, And as soon as he's no longer prime minister, 
he will face the possibility of going off to prison after a few more sessions of this of his of his trial and so his commitment to staying in power is all about getting a get out of jail free card as well as his political goals so he is desperate to do that and a few days may well be enough for him to either winnow off one all he needs is one person out of those eight parties eight parties that total 61 members of the Knesset he just needs to convince one to break with this coalition and the whole thing falls apart he could also move to move further to to uh, provoke a new war probably not with Gaza that didn't go so well for him the last time but he could on the Lebanon border and certainly cyber attacks, other kinds of attacks against Iran should not be ruled out. He's done that before. And I think this is something that, that we have to be very watchful of in this coming period. Right. And uh, Phyllis Bennis also, um, you know, there, some people are talking about the possibility of a civil war. I don't know. That might be a bit of a stretch there within Israel itself. But you do find... Um, you know, battles going on within Israel between um, right-wing um, Israeli citizens and Arabs who live in the region. I mean, like, for example, what's been happening in Lod. Tell us a bit about that and the implications of that. The implications really um, are more important, I think, on the Palestinian side than the internal Israeli political side. And what I mean by that is that one of the goals of Israel, that where they've been very successful over the last 70 years, has been in the fragmentation of the Palestinian people. So the divide between people who were expelled during the time of what the Palestinians call the Nakba, the catastrophe, what Israelis call the, the, the War of Independence in 1947 and 48, 750,000 Palestinians were forcibly expelled and never allowed to return home. They are the core of what became the Palestinian refugees, who still live in refugee camps in the region, are scattered around the world in a far-flung diaspora. So that's one sector. Another sector remains inside the 1967, you know, pre-1967 borders of Israel. Those, about 20% or so of the Palestinians who survived and were not expelled during the Nakba, who remained. They are citizens of Israel, but they are third- and fourth-class citizens. They don't have equal rights with Israeli Jewish citizens. So that's another sector. Then there are the Palestinians living under military occupation and siege in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and those who have a kind of in-between status in occupied East Jerusalem. So there's all these different sectors of Palestinian lives that have historically, because of Israeli strategy to do exactly this, been divided from each other. What we saw last month with the attacks on Gaza, the attack, the raid on the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and the attempted evictions in, in uh, Sheikh Jarrah, a Palestinian neighborhood of occupied East Jerusalem, in order to give their land and their homes to Israeli Jewish settlers, all of this has brought together all the sectors of Palestinians inside Israel, in the occupied territories, in the refugee camps, around the world, in a far more unified statement of opposition, mobilizations, the day that they called a general strike, that all the sectors kept to that discipline to impose that strike. All of that is a huge sh 
a huge shift and a huge step forward for Palestinian unity in this struggle for equality and human rights. And in, at the same time, what we're seeing is that both the, the far right in Israel, which has been enabled and empowered and legitimized by the Netanyahu administration, very much like the, the Klan and the, the neo-Nazis, etc., have been enabled and empowered and given legitimacy during the Trump years. It's a very similar situation. And they have felt enabled to go out on these very provocative marches. Most recently, the one that, was, that you referred to that was canceled, was uh, they were going to march through the old city of Jerusalem, through the Damascus Gate, gate a, a Palestinian part of occupied East Jerusalem, deliberately to provoke Palestinian rage, and it has led to fights. But we should be very clear that this notion of a civil war somehow implies armies on both sides. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a right-wing faction within Israel that has the backing of the state, that has the support of soldiers and police, where settlers, the most right-wing settlers, are armed by the Israeli military, trained by the Israeli military, and protected by the Israeli military. So they are an armed force. The Palestinians are not. The Palestinians have stones. That's really the, the distinction that we're, that we're looking at here. So this is not anything close to a civil war. There is increasing tension that is now emerging because the Palestinian citizens of Israel, who constitute about a fifth of the population, about 20% of the population, of, of citizens. And these are citizens. It's, a, it's such an odd thing for us to think about, but this is really very parallel to pre-civil rights movement, pre-second reconstruction United States South, where there are laws on the books that explicitly mandate treating one group of citizens different from another group of citizens based on this notion of nationality and religion. So Palestinians are citizens of Israel. They can vote. They can create political parties. They can run for office. They have representation in the Knesset. But not all rights in Israel, in the state of Israel, are citizenship rights. There's another whole category of rights known as, na as nationality rights. And Palestinians don't have that because nationality for Israel is defined not as Israeli, in the sense that if you're a U.S. citizen, that's your citizenship, and that's your nationality, American, U.S., that's your citizenship and your nationality. In Israel, your citizenship is, is, is in the state of Israel, but your nationality is Jewish or Muslim or Christian. And if you're not Jewish, many of the rights of the country are not accessible to you. And in two years ago, when Israel passed the new law, what's known as the nation-state law, it made that, it was the equivalent of a constitutional amendment in the United States. It was that kind of a super law, if you will, that says explicitly that the right of self-determination in the land of Israel is limited to Jews, that only Jews have the right of self-determination. Other citizens do not. So it's a very explicit reference to this notion of categories of citizenship that are not equal by law. So that's what we're, we're now seeing Palestinians inside Israel 
who have long identified with Palestinians living under occupation, but lived under a very different environment with different, uh, somewhat different rights, different restrictions uh, relative to Palestinians living under military rule. But suddenly they realize that they have far more in common with those living under occupation. So the level of unity expanded dramatically in this last month. And that's been an amazing thing to see. And one impact of it, of course, is that there's a growing divide between Palestinian citizens and Israeli Jewish citizens in the country. And those tensions are continuing to mount, for sure. Right. Well, on that note, sadly, we are going to have to leave it there, Phyllis Bennis. But we have seen protests breaking out in London, England, and San Francisco, and um, where a port uh, was shut down for a while in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Phyllis Bennis, we'll have you back. Thank you so much for breaking this all down for us. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret. It's been a pleasure. All righty, appreciate Phyllis's work there. And wrapping up our show, what's going on in the area known as George Floyd Square in Minneapolis, Minnesota? Let us go quickly to a clip um, from Yahoo News on what's happening with it being reopened and the reaction of uh, residents to it. The city of Minneapolis took the first step toward reopening George Floyd Square today. Early this morning, members of the community group Agape started removing the barriers. It reopened the intersection at 38th and Chicago for the first time in more than a year. Agape is a new group with some well-known community leaders working to bridge the gap between citizens and police. We went around the community, we went door to door asking the neighbors what they felt without giving them any type of uh, suggesting most of most of them 90 percent of them said that they wanted to see it open because of protests agape put some of those barriers back mayor jacob fry says he hopes to have the intersection fully reopened to traffic in the next few days those who live closest to the intersection of 38th and chicago have strong feelings about today's developments susan elizabeth littlefield talked with people in the neighborhood about the city trying to make changes as the concrete barriers came down, emotions flared up. We got more pushback than help. We got more pushback than help. The place where George Floyd died is now a place for remembrance. It's a place that's been guarded by civilian volunteers who blocked the area off from police. And all we asked for was some restorative justice that the trauma that the community endured that the harm would be repaired prior to the reopening of the streets. But instead, we were met with more trauma this morning. The city told us that they would let us know in advance before they reopened the streets. That didn't happen. George Floyd's aunt, who lives in Minneapolis, says she didn't know either. I don't understand how all these decisions are being made and they don't give me the respect of his family to tell me what is going on. All righty, and now let's welcome our guest, Marsha Howard, a high school English teacher, caregiver, and activist based in Minneapolis. Marsha is part of a volunteer security team that organized itself at the intersection of 38th and Chicago. She has been patrolling George Floyd Square every day since the police murder of George Floyd. Marsha Howard, welcome and thank you for your work. Thank you very much. Hello. Good morning. 
Okay, so in the few minutes we have, just give us your reaction to this uh, going back and forth on, um, you know, on Tuesday, June 8th, Cruz returned to George Floyd Square, yet again cleared Mm -hmm. barriers, right? And then um, people responded to that. Tell us what the situation is now. Well, to be clear, uh, on 6-3, when... um, the mayor gave uh, the authority of a recently developed uh, neighborhood group to command park police and city crews to remove the barricades. Uh, protesters have converged upon the square to immediately put the barricades back. Uh, and for a few days, we sort of uh, thought that we were in this sort of stalemate. Um, they, we would continue to man the barricades until yesterday. Uh, morning when uh, the city came again and removed the debris. But here's the thing. There were art installations, replicas of the power fist put on every uh, street corner, and they block a good portion of that street. Those still remain. But here's an interesting thing. Uh, Even though the protesters have yet to rebuild the barricades, and I'm not sure if they will, the city has done a little bit of street engineering to actually create natural barriers with 2,300-pound Jersey barriers that they themselves put on, uh, let's say, the intersection of 38th and Columbus Avenue a block away. See, what we understood as protesters sitting there for a year and some change was this. This neighborhood is already kind of been gentrified by this historic act. It is... um, the beating heart of a global social justice movement. And our leverage had been the street. We had 38th and Chicago. We weren't moving until they gave us the 24 demands of Justice Resolution 001. But we also were keenly aware that the city wanted this protest zone. They wanted the memorial. They want the fist, but without a fuss. They want the protest zone, but they don't want the protesters there. And so... Whatever this standoff is, understand those of us who have been here over a year, we're still standing for justice because they asked us why we were in the street from the 25th, 2020 on, and we said for justice. And they asked us a question, what does justice look like? And so we went up and down the street, in and out of homes, in and out of the businesses, asked the brothers on the corner, what do you want, what do you need to thrive? And the answers became the 24 demands of what we call Justice Resolution 001. The city, the city council, the mayor went into negotiations with those of us who occupied the zone then and there. We've had multiple rounds of negotiations with varying degrees of success. I was in four hours yesterday in negotiations because what we know is this city did wrong. The first words of Justice Resolution 001 is, whereas the city killed a man. They know what they did. They know they did wrong. They know they didn't have the moral authority to open these streets because injustice closed those streets. And until they make justice, they didn't have the authority to open it, which is why they commissioned a group of African Americans to attempt to do it. But the real question remains now. If I don't leave my front porch where I am right now as I'm staring at my barricade, if I'm not there to make sure it stays safe and secure and sustainable and sacred, 
We're out of time. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, including assistant producer Romero Funes and today's audio engineer. I'd also like to thank the Global Justice Ecology Project. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. And remember to visit our website, sotrueradio.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at So True Radio. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.